name is Dr. Chayaliba Kobernek, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Mindful Woman Mothers podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and a mother to four delicious girls. Here, we'll explore what it means to be a mindful woman through every stage of motherhood. Welcome. On today's podcast, I am excited to be speaking with Isabella Balvin, my own former doula. Isabella is a passionate birth worker and a radical feminist, and I am so excited for us to be chatting today. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I guess a good place to start would be to hear how did you get involved with birth work? So... I had been doing a lot of childcare after I graduated from college. Um, it was an easy way to make money and to make cash. And I always had an affinity for working with families and I loved babies and being around mothers. And I had heard about women, you know, being treated badly in birth. And I, I guess I came into it through a kind of surface level understanding of feminism. And from there, I heard that birth was actually a part um, of feminism that isn't talked about, or I guess the injustices that happen to women in birth as a, as a category within feminism that, that isn't addressed enough. And so I'd heard about this film called The Business of Being Born, and I watched The Business of Being Born. But still at that point, I, I really wasn't interested in birth. I was more interested in becoming like a certified um, postpartum doula, right? I wanted to honestly just make more money doing what I was already doing, which was working in, in people's homes, like working with women and being with their babies. Can you um, tell, tell us what is that? What is a postpartum doula? So a postpartum doula is um, a woman who will join a family right after the birth of the baby and focus on the needs of the mother. So rather than a baby nurse or even a family member that might just take the baby away from the mother, the postpartum doula is focused on providing what the mother needs so that she can be with her baby. So that doesn't mean I would never hold the baby. You know, I would certainly hold the baby, put the baby in a carrier and do laundry while the mother showered and rested and ate. But for the most part, um, I was helping to create a condition, a set of um, circumstances and infrastructure in the home where the mother and the baby could be skin to skin in bed breastfeeding for as much of the day as possible. So that would look like um, preparing food, doing laundry, uh, helping with breastfeeding, um, giving the partner some time to maybe step out, walk, walk the dog, whatever needed to be done, all the to-do lists and the errands and stuff so that the mother is not alone. Um, can I ask, you know, a, a client just asked me about this Um shouldn't she's two weeks postpartum and she said shouldn't I be doing more shouldn't I be getting dinner ready shouldn't I be I want to get out so maybe I should go to grocery shopping why why is it important to enable a mother to stay skin to skin in bed all nursing why is that important it's important because it's part of the physiologic design of, of birth and postpartum. I mean, women's bodies are not designed to just be up and running and back to normal and going about. And actually it can lead to prolapse and, ble and bleeding and um, exhaustion and depletion and dehydration. So it's really, really crucial that, especially a breastfeeding mother, crucial that she is in bed bonding with her baby um, skin to skin and resting and she's replenishing not just from the birth but from the entire pregnancy and so it's it's you know what what I think is required physiologically is really at odds with what society, you know, sets up for women. So it's, you know, I, I can hear the women say, hearing, hearing this, you know, maybe thinking, okay, well, it's just not possible. I have five other kids running around, you know, this is insane. I can't, you know, take 
you know, 40 days to just be in my bed, you know, and so I understand that I have empathy for that. And, you know, I will say that a postpartum doula, I now actually see as a very, very lame attempt at creating the village, you know, it's kind of sad in some ways that a family would, you know, have to pay a woman, you know, 40 to $50 an hour to be that village. I mean, I think it's better than nothing. If families, you know, want to invest in that support, I think it goes a long way. Um, And most families, they can't afford not to have it, but I understand that it's, it's not, it's more like a bandaid, you know? And I think if anything, it's an introduction for, for a lot of women to how they can be centered and cared for in a society that does not prioritize mother baby, does not prior prioritize rest, does not prior prioritize, you know, pausing, Uh, right? We live in a very go, 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 you know, the more you produce, the more value you have. Um, And so, you know, for the, for the, you know, those first few weeks of just getting into a rhythm of breastfeeding, I mean, that's crucial. So the baby having, you know, unlimited access um, to its, life source, their mother is really crucial for just establishing milk too, you know? So, um, that skin to skin allows for bonding. It allows for nervous system regulation. Uh, the more the baby feeds, you know, the more protection there is for the mother's uterus to kind of surge and contract, uh, which will prevent, you know, bleeding and, you know, the bodies know, you know, I think I I've supported women who go out very early and, you know, I, I once supported a woman who was rock climbing at three weeks <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard because yes, women, obviously I believe in autonomy, but all, you know, that women should be doing what they want to be doing. And that doesn't exist outside of you know, what we've been socially like conditioned to, to think we should be able to do and what we're expected to do very early after um, giving birth. And so there is also, you know, some adrenaline that occurs a couple days for like two or three days after giving birth, but then there's like a crash, right? There's like a come down and mm-hmm. um, being fed and having the house put together and, you know, being massaged and having someone draw a bath. I mean, this should be the, just the standard experience for birthing women, but it's just, we are so, so, so far from that. So. You you mentioned um, the village. What do you mean by that? I mean, women in your community who will show up with food and care for you and grandmothers and sisters and cousins and mothers who are just there, who really step in to support this massive time of transition with a growing family. So, um, yeah, I mean, traditionally the village would be like your family members and extended family members, but I think what women are starting to do now, at least like the women that I serve, you know, who are predominantly secular, who live, you know, in different states, different places from their families. They don't live in a big home with, you know, three generations. Um, they'll do things like start meal trains. So they'll have, you know, a document where everyone can kind of sign up and and agree to provide um, one meal a day for the first, you know, two weeks. And so I think that's like, again, we're, we're doing our best to kind of keep it together and, and to form community and village where there isn't, mm-hmm. you know, where we're not all living in a big house together. Um, but, you know, the village can also look like, you know, here where I live now, I do a monthly, I host a monthly event where the pregnant women come and we sit in circle. And through that, there are connections made. And, you know, when one woman has a baby, the, the, the others know. And so there is a kind of coordinated effort to check in on each other and, and whatnot. So that's what the village, the village can also, you know, end up looking like that. I think, you know, parents who send their kids, you know, to the same school, there ends up being a kind of community around that. So we're really having to like 
search for it these days, you know, um, unless you live on a kibbutz or you live in a three generation home, um, it's, it requires like conscious planning. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is very different. Although I, though I, I will say in our community, a concept of a meal train is, is quite common. Um, but I also agree with you that the, the, community and that intergenerational piece I think is very different today we live much more spread apart in general and much more independent slash isolated um so absolutely yeah and I think you know people are lit like in secular communities that I've served like everyone's in scarcity you Mm -hmm. know like there even the ones who have a lot of money there isn't this feeling of like abundance where like I have so much and I can like I'll help you out you help me out it's like I only have four weeks off or two months off and my partner only has 14 days off and like you know everything is like yeah I mean just like with New York City like work schedules mm-hmm. you know it's just the, the the lifestyle of the city of the city to me reeks of scarcity yeah and so this idea of like dropping everything and it just being so natural to just, you know, cook for half a day and then bring it over to the front. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not a part of the culture that I was raised in, which is predominantly like secular city life. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't, it didn't that, yeah, that wasn't the way that I was raised. And that's not the way that my mother you know, mothered and, you know, we're like, or her birth and postpartum experience went, right. She had one woman who looked after me for, you know, from the day I was born till I was 13, you know, she was like my second mother. Um, My mom went back to work after six weeks. And so my mother was my mother. There's no doubt about that. She was extremely present. And because we didn't have this village, there was a, a strong dependence on this one other woman. And she, was the woman who looked after all the kids in the building. So it was, this, it was very sweet. Yeah. It was uh, this whole thing, you know, all the moms would go to work and leave their kids with this one woman who lived in the building. And um, so that was uh, my like little kind of village. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know you used to offer doula services in, you know, typical standard hospital births, and now you're, you're doing something a little different. Can you share how that shift happened and what you're up to now? Yeah. So I just did the path that I, that I knew. I mean, I, I didn't even think it was possible to attend home births. You know, I, I just did the typical path where you get the birth doula certification and then you, you do your certifying births. And I really liked doing the certifying births more than, you know, I thought I was just going to do postpartum work. And then I thought, wow, really, there's something about birth that I really, really like. Um, so yeah, it wasn't even a question if I would attend hospital births. It was like, of course, everybody gives birth in a hospital. If, if I want to attend births, I have to go to the hospital. That's where I, I have to go where the women are going. And so I started doing that. Um, and at first it was really exciting, you know, to like fight against the system. You know, as soon as I realized, wow, this is a really abusive system. Like women are um, being treated like, chattel here and and being dehumanized and um, touched unconsensually and um, gaslit and lied to, you know, once I realized that that was happening and I knew that was happening, then it was like, okay, well, what am I going to do to fix it? And so then all the trainings came in with the rebozo and the comfort, you know, comforting touch and massage and hypnobirthing. And it became a matter of like, okay, well, how do I make this better? How do I help my clients get what they want, which is, you know, no epidural, no Pitocin, no C-section. You said the word abuse. Why would you use that term? Um, Yeah, I would absolutely call it abuse um, because there, well, first of all, there's a grooming process that happens prenatally where women are, you know, kind of very deliberately, um, confused by the medical establishment, meaning that they are being given information that is objectively untrue, meaning that the, you know, the, the prenatal care is, is 
largely, if not entirely, not based on evidence. So these practices are being implemented that seem just so normal and so common because all your friends have had it and your sisters and your mom, but it's actually grounded in nothing. Like what? Like vaginal exams, for example, you know, so routinely, you know, women during their prenatal appointments are told that, you know, just they're not even told it's just it's so ingrained into the process where the provider will just have them get in the gown and stick their hands inside of them with no reason whatsoever okay to check the cervix check the cervix for what why okay if the cervix is this what does that mean if the cervix is that what does that mean like nothing is conclusive nothing means anything the cervix dilation gives us literally no information as to when a baby will be born um what it does though is it creates this kind of surveillance Mm -hmm. you know and so i think it's abusive in that you know it would be a lot for a woman to not have any obstetric prenatal care and then go into a hospital birth. Like that would be really, really shocking. I think why it's not so shocking for most women, at least not cognitively or consciously, is because they've had these little bits of abuse kind of sprinkled maybe throughout their entire, you know, experience with even before obstetricians, but with their gynecologist. You know, maybe they've had um, excessive pap smears or, um, unnecessary breast exams or uh, told they need to get on hormones to quote unquote, regulate their cycles. So there's a lot that happens even in gynecology that I, I think is, is, yeah, is a grooming process for then, you know, the main abuse, which, which is the birth. So um, yeah, vaginal exams, you know, like the process of um, someone you barely know putting their, whole fist inside of your most sacrosanct body part. But, but in obstetrics, it's, you know, there is this overtone of, of women as property, you know, women as vessel, uh, women not knowing what's best for them. It's super um, degrading and infantilizing. And, you know, because it's her first, especially if it's a woman's first pregnancy, you know, even more room for her to be abused by the system because, you know, it's all new. Like the newness is, I think, explicitly preyed upon by these doctors. It's insane. It's like, whether you think she's qualified or not, doesn't change the fact that it's her body and her body will give birth with, with or without you. I mean, it's an insane idea. Like, I'm not a woman because someone tells me I'm a woman. I'm a woman because I'm a woman. Like I'm pregnant because I'm pregnant, not because someone tells me I'm pregnant. This is insane. I'm not actually pregnant, but like you get the idea. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. But you know, it's, it's, it's just, so yeah, it's this, it's cycle. It's real. And so the worst part, I think as a witness to all of this was actually remaining in the system after the switch went off, Mm. you know, like I would describe, I would come back from a birth, barely a birth, call it. it I mean, you shouldn't even call it what happens. There isn't even birth. Yes. A baby is born, but it's, it's some twisted sabotage of, you know, of birth. So I would come back from these experiences and just yeah, just describe it as, you know, just, I just came back from opposite world, you know, where up is down and, you know, the grass is blue and the sky is green and, and that's just, yeah. And if, if you say anything other, like you're removed from the space. I mean, it was really everything that I had learned in about physiologic birth, like everything about how, like the most optimal way for a mother to have her baby is it, it's the complete inverse that happens in a hospital and a birthing center. So, yeah. So Can you once I, example? yeah, like the lights, 
like, you know, women are mammals give birth best in privacy and in dimly lit, if not completely dark environments, right? Our bodies have a neurological response to light. And so not only, you know, is the hospital lit, but it's lit artificially. It's like fluorescent lights, mm-hmm. lights that you can't control. Okay. Maybe you, 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 get a nice nurse and, you know, she helps, she accommodates you and, and you turn off the overhead lights, but you still have the blinking of the monitors. You have the wires, you have the sounds. It's just, it's, it's incessant. You're like living in a compute, like it's like giving birth in a, in an LED com- fluorescently lit computer, you are made to believe that you are not in control, that you are not in the driver's seat. And you aren't really because you're in someone else's house. So there's, there's this, a lot of narrative, you know, a lot of women will hire doulas because they think they're told that, you know, the doula will advocate for them and tell them their rights and, you know, be um, a cheerleader and, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. I think at best doulas mitigate harm. You know, I, I think more than anything, we are just buffers for the trauma and we, we help mask the trauma and we trauma bond with the women who are abused. I mean, that was my experience and we have no power mm-hmm. in that system. And so this idea that you could advocate in a, in a system where you are subordinate is just insane. It's like, how do prisoners advocate for themselves? Like there is a hierarchy in place. Okay. They can get a lawyer, they can appeal stuff, but they're still a prisoner, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I feel that way about women birthing in the system. It's, it's, and it's, it's almost more twisted because they actually can leave. But they're punished, you know, like if a woman wants to get up and leave in the middle of her abusive birth, she would be risking, you know, social being faced with social services, she might be physically restrained. And then even to the point where, you know, women know they're being abused in their birth. At that point, they could be freaking, you know, hooked up to seven different machines. You know, I've been at those births where the women recognize like the insanity of what's happening, but half their body is numb. What are they going to do? Get up and walk away? Like they literally can't. They are bound to the bed. Literally speaking, they are numb and bound and dependent. And so, oh my gosh. And then like the C-section, and then I always think about this with the C-sections too, then you know, having to rely on the nurses and say, please, and thank you. And, oh my gosh, it's, it's psychologically, it's, it's enough, you know, it really speaks to the the strength of women that they can, you know, that, that they could be so resilient after such an ordeal, even if they don't recognize it consciously as an, as abuse, as coercion, as gaslighting. It, it is. And so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think it, it speaks to the resilience and um, there's a resistance, you know, I think to calling it abuse and thinking of it as gaslighting and coercion, because what that means then is that a lot of things have been a lie. And It can be lonely when that shift happens, you know, that we've been lied to, that there's a dark history with obstetrics, that there's a dark history of objectifying women, women's bodies, using us as a means of reproduction and, you know, without regard to our humanity. Yeah, I I can understand the resistance and then, you know, some of us really cling to our stories. Like it was good. It was great. I love my kid. I love it. You know, like I love my kid. I love my story. And, you know, to, to, to question the birth can feel like, Oh my gosh, does this mean I, I'm going to resent the baby or, you know, but they're, they're entirely different things, but, um, but yeah, I think the, there's a resistance to, to that term, that way of thinking about it. 
Yeah, because I think there's a fear of, yeah, resenting maybe the partner or the doctor or even the child. Or the system that's supposed to take care of you. Yeah. And then there's like, okay, well, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. So what, so what is the alternative? What are, what are you, how, how did you progress from being in that system to, to what, what, what was the next step for you? The next step was like, you know, really wanting to attend more home births with licensed midwives, but I found that that wasn't the solution. I, I was just consistently disappointed with the way that home licensed home birth midwives were treating my clients. And it was, you know, they're part of the same system. So they would, you know, I, what I would, they would administer, you know, I worked with one midwife who administered antibiotics at home, who administered Cytotec, which is a induction medication. Um, What's the problem with at home? Well, just that it is a, it's 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 a completely medicalized intervention to treating a woman <coughs> excuse me who whose waters have been released for an amount of time that the midwife is uncomfortable with so again it becomes satisfying her discomfort rather than actually yeah. is it, is it in the best interest of the mother or the baby does it do anything for them it depends on the mother. It depends on the scenario and the timeline. And I, I mean, that's, that's up to each woman. Um, but, you know, from, from what I understand about antibiotics use and um, premature rupture, of the membranes, which is just a fancy way of saying the water is releasing um, is that it doesn't impact like outcomes, like the infection. Mm -hmm. So you know, regardless of whether it works or not, or is effective or not, is, isn't even the point. The point would be that there is at home, even with a licensed midwife, the point of authority is still the midwife. Mm -hmm. And so it's not such a big shift other than those interventions are now happening in, at home rather than at the hospital or the birthing center. Mm -hmm. you know, and the support is still conditional. Like if you don't take these antibiotics, if you don't take this induction drug, like I can't be your midwife, you know? So it's, it's, that's a, that's a kind of coercion. Like I can't be here unless you do X, Y, and Z and everyone's entitled to their boundaries, but this isn't boundaries. This is like an allegiance to a set of regulations set by the state set by their license, license, you know, board. So yeah, it, it's not that necessarily there were still interventions like, uh, you know, allopathic interventions being administered at home. I mean, there's natural stuff that, that was, you know, quote unquote, natural stuff also being done at home and pushed at home to keep, you know, the woman, um, on the timeline that the midwife wanted. So the same kind of pushiness and um, coercion and authority, I just started to see at, at home births as well, which was a bummer. So then there's, okay, well then what? Do I just quit birth work if this is what it's like? And no, I mean, so then I came across um, the Free Birth Society Instagram account and that was the first time that I had ever read about women intentionally birthing at home without medical, like, you know, licensed medical professionals that, you know, up until then I had just thought, okay, well, their accidents happen and birth is like, you know, works most of the time. So accidents happen and everything's usually fine. But to plan for women, this was unheard of for me, for women planning intentionally to have no one there that's licensed was new to me. And so um, it just clicked right away. I just thought, oh, yeah, duh, this is it. This is it. So everything happened really quick for, quickly for me from there. I mean, that I joined um, the Free Birth Society membership. 
And then I was invited to attend my first birth outside the system. And it was like an automatic yes. And the woman was 37 weeks pregnant. We met right away. We clicked right away. She and I are still friends. Her baby's two now. And um, I just said no more. Actually, that's not true. After I attended that birth outside the system, I went on to support, I think, one or two more hospital births. And then it was like, you know, there was a lot of trauma bonding, bonding that I was experiencing with the institution. And so even when I thought I was done, I went back and then finally I was done. Um, and it's just been a completely different experience working with women choosing to birth outside the system um, who are who see themselves as the authority on their bodies, their babies, birth. And those women are inviting me in as a witness, as a space holder, as a woman who has seen many births. Um, it's just an entirely different dynamic than what I was experiencing previously, which was like, what are you gonna do to help me? What are you gonna do to save me? What are you gonna do to make this better? How are you going to protect me? And so. So it's kind of like viewing the doula or viewing the, or the whole system, but in, in your role, viewing you as the savior, as the one who's going to fix it. And now it's kind of, I am the one who's going to take care of myself and I want to be held in that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like someone who's not going to take away and or project their own stuff onto the woman mm -hmm. giving birth, right? It's, it's her birth is not an opportunity for me to process my own trauma. Her birth is not an opportunity for me to display my skills. It's not an opportunity for me to like just watch her in this like voyeuristic way, which is what I experienced in the hospital. You know, it's like, especially my first few births, it was all just so new. And it was just like, Oh, it just, it wasn't serving. It wasn't serving the mom or the baby. I'll just say that it was It's like, a, I mean, it's a circus in there. It's so many people. It's very surreal. Um, you know, I felt very lucky to be there in some ways. Like, wow, she chose me and I get to be on the inside, you know, of this experience, which is again, super voyeuristic and just icky now that I, you know, when I think back on those experiences. So, um, yeah, it just makes for an entirely different like connection with families when they're inviting you in so intentionally Mm -hmm. um, and expectations are very clear on both ends. You know, when, when I was supporting women in the system, I, I kept getting into these really complicated situations where there was just, we thought you were going to help her do this and she still got an epidural and, you know, we paid $700 for your hypnobirthing class and like, it didn't work. <laughs> what does that mean? Or tell us more about, um, being being a hypnobirthing teacher so the <laughs> the being a hypnobirthing teacher it i mean it did a lot for me in that it really it, the program emphasizes physiological birth like you know it's a great way it, it's a it's a good baseline kind of childbirth education class however it, it fails in a lot of ways to name the harm which is the system Right. So on the one hand, they're saying mammals give birth in the dark and in a quiet space and in a private space. The hospital is well lit and um, loud and distracting and there are strangers there. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Right. But there isn't uh -huh. ever, you know, a conversation around like, don't go there. Like, that's where they abuse women. Like it just it wasn't it wasn't radical enough for me in that it didn't ever really name the harm. It was always a kind of a, 
oh, well, you know, yeah, not so everyone knows bad things happen there, but they would never name it. Mm-hmm. And it became more of an emphasis on how can we make it just better? You know, how can we just improve versus totally liberate women from this system? So, yeah, it was a very like reformist approach where they would, you know, really the Institute would, you know, want just more doctors to be familiar with the hypnobirthing method as if that was the solution, Mm -hmm. you know, to make women calmer and more quiet as they're being abused. And so, yeah, as soon as I realized, like, it was just, it felt unethical to me to, to be, to continue to teach a method that promotes a kind of dissociation hmm. to be able to tolerate the insanity of the hospital. Cause that's really what it does. Like it's in it. And, and, you know, I've seen it being extremely effective, effective in that, like, you know, women were almost looked like they were sleeping, but what good, like what, what good does that do for the collective? Okay. So maybe she was able to, have lower cortisol levels and, you know, not get an epidural, but she still got Pitocin. I mean, she still got a fist inside her, you know, every two hours, she still had forced pushing, you know? So it's like this very like individualistic approach too, to be like, okay, well, we can just make things better a little bit here, a little bit there, reform here, a little forward. It doesn't address like, it doesn't address what's happening in a, on a global scale, like for the collective. So that was, yeah, my frustration with that method. Um, It didn't get to the root. Is there any problem that you see with um, promoting calm and quiet? What's that do in birth? I think it it promotes like a one-size-fits-all, that there's a right way to, to have your baby, right? If If you're promoting a quiet, calm birth as being optimal, then what's a roaring woman going to feel after her birth? You know, she's going to feel like she did it wrong. She's going to feel like she didn't practice the tools enough. I mean, that's literally what women's what women would say to me after their births, you know, like, you know, I screamed a lot. I know I didn't, you know, I must've not listened to the, the hypnobirthing tracks enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt pain. I must've been doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, it sets I, women I, up for I, failure. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, women are looking to escape this pain, this, um, the, 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 there's something bad or scary or wrong with birth. And we Mm want to find a way to solve that problem. So if I'm not going to have an epidural, I've got to have something else. No. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, and I get why they're scared and I get why they, they cling to these tools and or cling to these doulas because they're freaking terrified, you know, to go to a strange environment with strangers putting their fists inside of you. Like nobody looks forward to that. No one, no one. Now I think the illusion of safety in the hospital is very strong so that there is a kind of like relief that, that some women will feel when they arrive to a hospital, but then, you know, the reality of being there is entirely different, right? This like illusion of safety is constantly contradicted with, you know, like just strangers in your space, staring at you, objectifying you, you're on this high bed. I mean, it's, the, the the elaborate nature of the the psychology of the whole thing is just i mean it's 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 fascinating and disturbing all at the same time yeah you know even the like being approached when you get to the hospital with a wheel with a wheelchair like as if you're sick and and old and like you're going to die it's so strange. It's so, so strange. Yeah. So when we start thinking about women asking questions and thinking about this more critically, what does it mean to start taking more responsibility? Doesn't that 
in a way also say that the woman is being unsafe or being um, un- uh, irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, so the biggest shift is, I think, first understanding that no one is there to save us, right? And as soon as we think that there's someone knows more than us or is there to save us, like that's when our we were giving up a part of ourselves, right? Because then we are at the will of someone else. Like, how is that sustainable to be at the will of someone else for as you know important an event as your birth? Mm-hmm. So I think part of the, you know, first step of taking responsibility is coming to terms, you know, with, with the fact that no one is going to save us, but ourselves. Mm. So can you talk about, um, I know I've heard you talk about radical responsibility. What does that mean? So for us to be, you know, radically responsible means we need to figure out, um, whose business we're in, you know? So are we in, are we in a place where we can take no more or no less than a hundred percent responsibility, meaning that we are not taking more than what we are cut out for, more than what is ours or less than what is ours. And how does that show up for birthing women? Oh, well, I would say, you know, a good example would be like nourishment and exercise. Like there's a, there's a big, there's so much advice out there and books and articles and programs about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, how you should move you should not move, you know, like the temperature you should be in, whether you can have a glass of wine or like marijuana use, like there's just so caffeine, there's so sushi, um, cold cuts. Yeah. All of it. It's like, you know, so part of that is, you know, I think what I see more often is the, um, taking like less responsibility. Like, I don't know what to do, you know, like, they're telling me that they're telling me this I'm reading that I'm reading this. Like that is an opportunity for women, pregnant women to tune in and, and get to know what feels true for them. What feels good in their body, regardless of what the 10 million other people are saying or what Google is saying, you know? So I, I understand the frustration that women have with the, being in a space of not knowing or not wanting to decide. But at a certain point, we all have to make a decision, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, you know, yeah, the example of like exercise and nutrition in pregnancy is a good one mm-hmm. because yeah. there's just so many opinions. Yeah, that's interesting because it's almost like the system's not taking responsibility either, you know? Um, even just the the right. alcohol, I, I can't remember the name of the TED Talk but there was some TED talk I listened to where she said, um, she said, the reason that they have these disclaimers on every single bottle of alcohol is not because alcohol is unsafe in pregnancy. It's because we don't trust women to know how much alcohol is okay for them to have. And that's yeah. ridiculous. Um, this is not about what's actually safe or unsafe. This is about, okay, how do we protect you from yourself? Because you can't, yeah, actually protect yourself or, or, or keep yourself healthy or so we don't have straightforward guidelines because guess what? It's not always a clear cut answer. I never forget in my third, in my, in my, in my last pregnancy, um, somebody who was in their first pregnancy and a colleague of mine asked, is it okay to have like egg salad from a deli? And I was like, what's the, like, why is that? A, why would that be a problem? And she's like, well, maybe it was like out near the cold cuts. And I was like, well, you know, lettuce has a pretty high listeria rate also. Like, I'm not so worried about the egg salad, but it could be, you know, uh, like there's no hard, fast rule. And right. there really isn't. It's really about, it, you know, how fresh is this thing? What are really are the odds of there being some kind of danger? But there's danger in all kinds of foods. You know, not having sushi doesn't make you a better mother, like hands down. 
yeah, it's like there's risk everywhere. And this like fixation on the coal cuts or the, the tuna or, you know, whatever it's, it's, you know, it's a really good distraction too, to not have to think about like the bigger things, mm-hmm. which is like, can I face making a decision to birth outside the system? Can I face what that would mean for my friendships and my relationship and my uh, professional connections? You know, like what would it mean to take full responsibility to come face to face with death? You know, because every birth is, you know, we come face to face with death. Right. It's the passage. It's like the literally life is coming through. Responsibility is, yeah, seeing the spaces where we undermined our authority constantly. Mm-hmm. And we're, cre- yeah, many of us, right? I do it too. Or I'm creating a sense of dependence. You know, I can't be radically responsible in every single aspect of my life. You know, I don't grow my own food. I don't pump my own water out of a well on my property. You know, like I'm not able to be radically responsible in every single aspect of my life. So this is, it's a practice, you know, how can we be responsible for our our emotions or our daily practices or our routine, right? So it's a practice. It's not a destination. It's, it's a, it's a practice and, it is the last thing that is encouraged for pregnant women, right? What is it? What, what, what's like the typical thing? Like everyone gets what to expect when you're expecting, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I got to know what to do. I got to read the book. I got to figure out what to do because I don't know what to do. Well, women actually do know what to do. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. It's only in the past like hundred or so years that there are these how-to books, three tips to this, four tips for that, how to get a six pack in pregnancy, you know, like all these (laughs) insane things that are just like marketed to us that prey on our like loss of that intuition or that you know, not, not that it could ever be lost, but the, the masking of the intuition and the, the ancestral knowledge and the knowing, you know, and then the, the arrogance of the institution to um, pretend like they're responsible for things that just would happen anyway and happen a lot better. If you had to think of like to take all the different pieces we've, we've talked about and give it over to women in a way that they can move from just from where I am right now to a little more uh, autonomy, a little more belief in myself, a little more uh, awareness, a little more mindfulness of what's going on in myself and in in the world around me. What do you wish women would know or how how can we move from where I am to a little, a little growth? I think the most powerful healing comes from listening to other women's stories who have been through a similar trajectory because it's not an individual issue. Like what one woman is going through many, 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 many other women have also gone through. So um, I always recommend the free birth society podcast because it's just filled with women's stories, like women who you know, we're brutal, some of whom were brutalized by the system who, you know, take this path to becoming responsible for their lives and their bodies and their babies and their births and have these awakenings. And yeah, I think that's really powerful is, is kind of witnessing other women unlearn and try out different ways of being you know? And so if it feels like totally crazy, if you feel like it would be totally insane for you to have a baby outside the system, just, you know, I would say open up a little space, just get curious, you know, aren't you curious? You know, that's how it's scary. I remember seeing like the free birth posts and just thinking, 
whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that is new territory. Like that is unknown territory. And like, but I'm curious and I'm going to go there. I'm going to see what's there. So yeah, I always recommend, you know, and listening to the birth stories of our grandmothers. So depending on how old your grandmother is, you know, maybe it's your great grandmother, but like really, you know, if you can uncovering those stories, because that's the closest we have to to uh, generation, generationally speaking, like to normal physiologic birth, you know, what were women doing before modern obstetrics, you know, took over, Mm -hmm. they were being attended by other women in the village who did not have like, there was no such thing as licensure state didn't control birth. What you're allowed to do. What you're allowed to do. I love that. It's like, yeah, what we're really freaking, we're not prisoners. We're women, you know, it's, but it's a mental prison that, that, that's been created and maintained very effectively. You know, when you think about the, like the very small percentage of women in the U S that they give birth at home, which is like two or 3%, you know, it's, it's unbelievable what they've managed to do in such a short period of time. And so it is going to take a while, I think, to normalize birth again, to normalize women's bodies, to not pathologize. So yeah, I'd say the a great first step is to just listen to the stories of women, whether that's on you know the Free Birth Society podcast or uncovering the stories of your ancestors um, and looking at, yeah, your matriarchal lines and seeing what's there. If women would like a way to get in touch with you or find out more about your work, where can they find you? So they can find me at whosebodyisit.com. That's also my handles. I also have a YouTube channel um, where I talk about all kinds of gaslighting and coercion and female erasure. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Whose body is it? It's W H O S E body. Is it? Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah.